I want to remind you that uh, the first, November, first Sunday in November, we will have a baptism service here at the church as part of our Sunday morning uh, worship. And so if you're interested in being baptized, there's a card in the pew rack that you can fill out where you can check off baptism and uh, place that in the offering plate this week, next week. Hand it to me after church is fine, and uh, we'll make sure to make arrangements for that. Um, as we noticed last week, the reliability of the Bible is under attack, but that's nothing new. It's always been under attack. In fact, skeptics of the Bible have made some pretty outlandish claims through the years about the reliability, the truthfulness of the written uh, scriptures. Uh, for example, uh, scholars have said that ancient Israel, as described in the Bible, get this, never existed. And there's people out there who champion this perspective, that ancient Israel never existed. There are people that say that Abraham, Father Abraham from the Scriptures, never existed, wasn't a real person. There are people that will say that, well, Moses and King David and King Solomon, none of these biblical characters are all fictional characters. And they're out there telling this stuff and writing books about this stuff. And people are reading this stuff and they're just assuming because it's in print, obviously, it must be true. And so here's a quote from one of these um, skeptics of the Bible, Dr. Israel Finkelstein of Tel Aviv University. He says, the Bible is not a story about the miraculous acts of God, but a brilliant product of the human imagination. He goes on to say, we cannot talk about the Bible as though it represents historical reality. One more quote for you comes from John Murray. He's the president, former president of the American Atheists Society, so understand where this is coming from. He says, the Bible is a fictional, non-historical book. It is a myth that is good for business. So outside of being a really catchy little line there, a zinger, is there any truth? Is there, is there any basis for these guys making these kind of claims? Uh, or, or is this just something that they're trying to say to shoot a zinger across the bow of Christians? And so that's what we want to talk about today, is to look at some of the external evidence that corroborates, that proves the, 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 um, the reliability of the biblical record, okay? And we're going to go to the field of archaeology today um, to find some of this. Now, I have just one verse for us to read. You're going to stand up, you're going to sit down, it's going to go really quickly. But this is a big verse. This is a monumental, monstrous, huge statement that Jesus makes. It comes to us from Luke chapter 21 and verse 33. So I'm going to ask if you would just stand and we stand for God, the reading from God's Word to, to acknowledge both our reverence and respect for God's Word, but to acknowledge also that this book is where truth comes from. The Bible is God's truth in written form. Let's see what Jesus had to say here. Luke chapter 21, verse 33, big monumental statement. Here it comes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, you can be seated. All right, we're going to come back to that verse in just a little bit. Let's hang on to it. Uh, we're going to catch up with it here in a little bit. But first, I want to examine some of the external evidence, some of the archaeological evidence that refutes these comments by Dr. Israel Finkelstein and refutes these comments by John Murray. Um, let's, uh, let's take a look at some of these. One of the, uh, for example, one of the things that critics have said about the Bible is that writing at the time of Moses, 1500, 1400 uh, B.C., did not exist uh, in that part of the world, that there was no such thing as writing. They didn't have alphanumeric uh, symbols. And so they said there's no way then that Moses could have possibly written down the Ten Commandments. Um, well, that was until archaeologists discovered that people in the ancient Near East could write and did write in alphanumeric symbols 
um, as early as 3000 B.C. We have literally thousands of documents that have been unearthed over the last hundred or so years, everything from law codes to legal documents to business transactions and sales contracts. In fact, down in the Sinai Peninsula, there's an area called Sidel Fidel, um, I'm sorry, Sira Fidel Kadim, and it's an old turquoise mine that the Egyptians used at the time of Moses. They used Canaanite slaves to go work these, this turquoise mine, and on the walls in this turquoise mine are alphanumeric uh, writing that the slaves, the Canaanite slaves used to write down stuff on the inside of this cave on the walls where they were mining at. Now, friends, if Canaanite slaves could read and write at the time of Moses, you see where I'm going with this, don't you think that the prince of Egypt could read and write? A guy who had headed up massive building campaigns, a guy who had been trained, educated in the house of Pharaoh himself, of course he could, and so that corroborates the biblical story. Critics also say that Abraham, the Abraham of the Bible, that he never existed. You say, Gordon, are there really people out there that say this? Yes. I remember standing on the sidewalk when I was going off and doing my doctoral program. I was standing on the sidewalk. I'm, there was a conversation going on between the dean of the school where I went to seminary. He was a Hebrew scholar and another one of my fellow colleagues who I looked up to at the time. And these guys were having a conversation about what they didn't think happened in the Bible. And one of the things they said was they thought that Abraham was a mythological figure, that he was just a fictional character from the Bible. Apparently, these guys hadn't read or seen any of the archaeological evidence that had been, um, had been presented. Um, and so one of the things that people who think that Moses, or I'm sorry, that Abraham was not a real guy, one of the things they say is that the place where Abraham was from, that the Bible says he's from, a place called Or, when you're texting, it's you are, or of the Chaldeans that that place never existed, Abraham's hometown, because there hadn't been any archaeological find of that. Well, that was, actually, we have a picture on our map here. I'm going to throw a map up here. And if you look, you can, I don't know if you can pick out where it says Mesopotamia across the map, and then you can see the Persian Gulf. Well, just north of the Persian Gulf, right along where the Euphrates rivers, you have the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that run down toward the Persian Gulf, and just north of the Euphrates River is the town, the find of the city of Ur. Um, in 1922, archaeologists dug up this city, and so we got a couple of pictures for you here. Some of the buildings that you see were buildings that were on the site at the time, but then they went down below the tell, and then that's where they found uh, the foundations of the city of Ur and all the evidence that came along with that. Um, just like the Bible said, existed there. Um, critics of Abraham also said, well, maybe Ur was a real city, but that city of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Bible talks about in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 19, that those weren't real cities. And the reason that they say that is because Sodom and Gomorrah today are this dry, arid desert region where nothing could possibly grow. It certainly couldn't uh, support a population of people. And so we have a picture of you, for you of what that particular territory down there on the southeast corner of the Dead Sea looks like. Because if you remember in the biblical text, Abraham and Lot were having a conversation about where Lot was going to go and where Abraham was going to go. And he, said, Lot, he told Lot, his nephew Lot, you go ahead and pick wherever land you want to go live in. And Lot said, well, I'm going to go down here towards Sodom and Gomorrah on the southeast tip of the Dead Sea because it's fertile, because it's lush. Well, that picture doesn't look lush and fertile, does it? Nothing's growing there. Well, 4,000 years ago, apparently things were growing there, and archaeologists have discovered that the area down there on the, in the southeast part of the Red Dead Sea actually was a fertile territory. Um, what they discovered in 1929, beginning in 1929, a guy by the name of Dr. Nelson Gleek found an ancient road that connected 
five cities on the southeastern coast of the Dead Sea to the northern regions up around the Jordan River Valley up toward Israel. And over the next 60 years, archaeologists have found that what is today a dry, arid region actually back then was a thriving agricultural territory that literally the landscape of the place has changed over the last 4,000 years. The first thing that piqued archaeologists' interest were the size of the um, cemeteries that existed. We have a picture for you of the archaeological dig of one of these five cities. There's three out of the five cities they have found cemeteries, and in each of these cemeteries, and this is just part of it, in each of these cemeteries, get this, they have found over a half a million bodies in each of these cemeteries. I'm not talking about mass graves. I mean like nice tombs that their bodies were placed in, over a half a million in each of the three out of the five cities. Massive populations down there on the southeast corner. And so archaeologists start scratching their heads going, well, maybe the area was a little bit different than it is today. Another thing that tipped the people off, the archaeologists off, was when they began to look at and examine remnants of the food sources of the civilization. They found, get this, wheat. They found barley. They found plums. They found dates. They found peaches. They found grapes, figs, pistachios, almonds, olives, pine nuts, lentils, y'all getting hungry, chickpeas, pumpkins, flaxseed, and even watermelon. Not only did they find all this, but they discovered from, from exhuming these tombs that the average height of the people who lived in that part of the world, now you, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but if you walk through an airport in Korea, I'm a really tall guy. If I walk through an airport in that part of the world, same kind of concept. People there are a little bit shorter than they are here in the States. And part of the reason why people were so, or, or I'm sorry, the, when they exhumed these cemeteries down there, the average height of the people was five foot nine to six foot four. Average height. Uh, way back then, 4,000 years ago. And the only reason that that can happen, friends, is because they had so much agriculture. They had so much available to them as abundant food source, which proves what the Bible is saying is true. Last bit about these five cities. Do you remember how Sodom and Gomorrah ended? God was, had had it with Sodom and Gomorrah, and he rained down, the Bible says, fire and brimstone. That word brimstone in the Bible is usually referring to some sort of sulfuric or hot ash that's falling from the sky. Well, now here's a really interesting one. As the archaeologists are, are digging out this area, what they discovered was that the entire area was blanketed in anywhere from 4 inches to 20 inches of volcanic ash. And that it ended these civilizations, dating way back to 4,000 years ago to the time of Abraham. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, even some of the skeletal structures that they found laying on the ground, just like what you'd find in Pompeii, um, of people that had been, had been hit with this volcanic material, um, that this was how these, how these societies just vanished off the face of the earth. William F. Albright, he's one of the most renowned archaeologists of his day back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And here's what he had to say about these particular finds. He said, and I quote, It's now becoming increasingly clear that the traditions of the patriarchal age, he's referring there to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the, the fellows in Genesis. He says that traditions of the patriarchal age preserved in the book of Genesis reflect with remarkable accuracy. This is the most renowned archaeologist of his day. Reflect with remarkable accuracy the actual conditions of the ancient Near East in the Middle Bronze Age. Now, was this guy a preacher? No. Was this guy a seminary professor? No. He was a professor of uh, Near Eastern cultures at Johns Hopkins University who was honest 
about where the evidence was leading, namely that the Bible is reliable and true. Okay, I know there's a lot to take in, but I got one more for you. Y'all game for one more? I got, I got, I got a lot more than one, but I'm just going to give you one more. And this one comes to Isaac and Jacob, Abraham's son and grandson, respectively. Critics of the Bible once said that the customs of the people who lived in that particular time period of the patriarchal age were completely out of step with the customs that are reflected in the biblical text. That's what critics had to say. Um, that the neighbors of Isaac and Jacob, they acted totally different than how Isaac and Jacob are, are spoken of and told uh, to, to react to things. That is until a fellow, an archaeologist by the name of Dr. Edward Chiera began excavating an ancient city of Nuzi, which is northwestern Iraq. So if we go back over to our map really quick, and the Tigris and the Euphrates flowing down toward the um, Persian Gulf, and you go up northern, in the northern part of that, Tigris and Euphrates, in the territory of Mesopotamia, which is where Abraham was from. So he's excavating in a city called Nuzi, N-U-Z-I. And uh, this, his work ran through the 30s and into the 40s and continues to this day. And what they found was over 5,000 stone tablets. Most of these tablets are legal documents. Most of these tablets um, are business contracts. And they depict daily life in the Mesopotamian era. And so this is how scholars today are able to read documents like this and say, okay, well, this is what these civilizations were like. They didn't have TVs back then. They didn't have a history channel, right, that we can just go back and watch. They had to go back and find what they could and make sense out of it. And so um, here's what they've done. Um, and, one of, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that corroborates the biblical text, but I'll point out one particular detail that jumped out at me um, was the story of how Isaac, um, and he had two sons named Jacob and Esau, and how the elder son, Esau, was supposed to get the birthright. No, we're supposed to get the family fortune, and his brother Jacob was just out of luck. Well, Jacob comes in one evening to his blind dad's room, and he uh, makes believe that he is his brother Esau. And he gets his dad to give him, Jacob, the birthright. So he, in essence, Jacob steals Esau's birthright. He steals the family fortune from his older brother. Have you ever wondered why Isaac didn't just say, I take it back. Uh, you tricked me, Jacob. Um, I, you know, you walked in the room. I, you thought, I thought you were your brother, and I gave this to you. Did you ever, ever wonder about why didn't he do that? Well, according to these texts from Newsy, one of the things that, that is in there is that it was illegal once a father had given his birthright to his son, for the father to take it back. And it's interesting because that way, you know, it, if the son turns out to be foolish, or the son turns out not to be thrifty, and he's squandering the family fortune, the dad can't go, oh, well, hold on, that was a mistake. And so it was illegal for them to do that. And so here we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three guys whose, whose roots go into that Mesopotamian, ter Mesopotamian territory who are... Um, reflecting that culture and customs of that day. I think the point is clear. Namely, that the customs that we find on these tablets in Newsy line up perfectly with the customs of the Bible and that it describes amongst these three characters. And this forced the famous archaeologist Dr. H.H. H. Rowley of the University of Manchester, England to say, the stories in Genesis so accurately reflect the social customs at 2000 B.C. that it is striking. And he went on to say, 
It's not because scholars of today begin with more conservative presuppositions. In other words, the scholars that we have out there, people undertaking this archaeological evidence and mass massing it together, they don't have a starting point of, I want to go prove the Bible. He's saying that's not, that's not, that's not the reason why uh, we're verifying the Bible. He said the reason is because the evidence warrants our affirmation of the biblical record. So let me wrap up all this with one more thought. What does that mean for Dr. Israel Finkelstein, who said that the Bible is a myth, who said that Abraham never existed? Well, it means in the words of Dr. Kevin Kitchen, and I put this one up here on the screen for you, he is the professor emeritus of Egyptology and archaeology at the University of Liverpool, England. It means Dr. Finkelstein's treatment of the Genesis record, the patriarchal record, which he described, Dr. Finkelstein described as pure fiction. It means that it proves that he is utterly out of his depth, Dr. Finkelstein is. It proves that he is hopelessly misinformed and that he is totally misleading. End of quote. I don't think these two fellows like one another a whole lot. But the point is, you've got one guy who just wants to make outlandish statements, who just wants to throw people off their game, who just wants you to not believe. And then you have another person who says, I represent the hard facts. I represent the evidence that we've unearthed, that corroborate the biblical record, and I follow the evidence, rather than just where I want the evidence to lead. Well, I could go on and on and on, and you say, well, please don't. <laughs> um, and that's fine. That's fair. Um, but let's go to our most important question, and that is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I got bills to pay. I got kids to raise. I got marriage to work on. I got all kinds of things going on. What difference does any of this make? To me? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is it matters a ton. A ton. And here's why. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus believed all of this stuff about Abraham, about Noah, about Isaac, and Jacob. And friends, if Jesus believed it, then that should hold some credibility as to whether or not we should believe it. Jesus is talking here to some folks. He says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Have you read that the beginning, that at the beginning, he's referring here to the Genesis record of creation, that the Creator, that at the beginning of the world, the Creator made them male and female. Verse 5, And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so again, we have Jesus quoting here from the book of Genesis. Uh, verse 7, the Pharisees responded, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. He says in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So here we have Jesus on record defending biblical marriage, really important. But we also have Jesus on record affirming the creation story. We have him affirming that Adam and Eve were real people. We have him affirming that the person that the Bible calls Moses was a real historical figure, not some fictitious character. Flip over to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 24, Jesus is again talking to a group of people, and this time he makes a pronouncement. And here's what he has to say, verse 24, But I tell you 
that it will be more bearable for Sodom, remember Sodom and Gomorrah hit with the fire and brimstone, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Jesus is referring here to the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming in 70 AD when the Romans are going to come down from the north, they're going to encircle the city of Jerusalem, they're going to um, lay siege to the city for several months. As people try to escape the city, they're going to crucify them onto the city walls. There were tens of thousands of people crucified all around Jerusalem. Blood literally ran through the streets. It was a terrible, gruesome time. Jesus says, it's going to be better for you, uh, or it's going to be better for the people of Sodom than it would be for you. Because the people of Sodom, they were ended quickly. Their suffering ended immediately. Whereas for you, when the Romans come, your suffering is going to prolong and prolong. Um, Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 27. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Again, we have Jesus on record saying, hey, I heard Sodom, real place, that really happened. Hey, this guy named Noah, real dude, existed in human history. He affirms the global flood. Jesus on record right here. Then the flood came and destroyed them all, he says. Jesus believed, friends, in the historicity of the flood record. Got one more for you, John chapter 8 and verse 39. Jesus is talking with the doctors of the Jewish law about the Bible. He says, verse 39, John chapter 8, Abraham, they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus replied, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. And then he says, verse 40, as it is, you are determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I've heard from God, Abraham, he didn't do these things. He didn't do these things. Friends, Jesus believed in a real historical person named Abraham. Despite what those guys on the sidewalk when I was in seminary were talking about, Jesus believed in a real person named Abraham. All that said, Jesus believed in the historicity, the reliability of the biblical record. He held it to be true. He believed in the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. He believed in six days of creation. He believed that God is our creator, that the universe is not infinite. And that it doesn't just go on forever and ever. And even the Hubble telescope went up in the sky and proved that back in the late 90s. But um, Jesus believed in Noah and the worldwide flood. He believed in an ark, a vessel of safety. Jesus believed in Abraham and Moses. Jesus believed these were real people. My point is that if the biblical record is not true, if the biblical record is not true, that Jesus himself affirmed, then Jesus was himself was deceived, which means he wasn't God. Or it means that Jesus lied to us, which also means he wasn't God. Let me say that for you again. If the biblical record is not true, the record that Jesus affirmed, and Adam and Eve, six days of creation, Noah, a flood, a creator, a finite, not infinite, a finite universe, a real guy named Abraham, a real guy named Moses, if these things are not true, then Jesus is either deceived himself, which means he wasn't God, or Jesus lied to us, which also means that Jesus wasn't God. So there's a lot riding on the truthfulness and the reliability of the text. Let me take you to that verse again, that big monumental statement. 
Luke chapter 21 and verse 33. Does Jesus stand by his words? Well, let's see what he had to say. Luke chapter 21 and verse 33. The whole lot hangs in this right here. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. You can count on it. But my words will never pass away. How sure was Jesus of his teachings? How truthful did he believe his perspective to be? Absolute. Absolute. The final word. Trustworthy. True. Reliable. Something you can count on. Faithful. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Friends, if what Dr. Israel Finkelstein said is true, then the Bible is just a myth. What Jesus had to say, on the other hand, is that, um, that the Bible is not mythological, that the Bible and all of that's recorded in it, friends, is historical, it's reliable, it's true. And so praise God for archaeologists, <laughs> right? I love those guys. I mean, the more they dig out of the ground, the more that they prove that the Bible is true. Just tell them to keep on digging, right? <clears throat> and what that means is that everything else that Jesus told us, friends, is reliable, it's faithful, it's true. It means that Jesus is indeed the Christ the Son of the living God, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen? Let me wrap up with this. If you're here this morning, and you have a real and personal relationship with Jesus, then that means that you've put your trust not in just in the person of Jesus, but also in the words of Jesus, in what he taught, in the perspective that he gave, in the promises that he made us, about how you inherit eternal life, about our sin problem, his words. You're not just saying, well, you know, he, was this, he came, he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross, but his words, you know. No, the two are inextricably linked. And so the reliability and the faithfulness of the biblical record itself, which Jesus affirmed, his words, are inextricably linked to the person of Jesus, are inextricably linked to the promises that he made us. Friends, this is the infallible. It means that there's no false teachings in it the infallible Word of God. This is the inerrant Word of God. That means there's no errors in it. It is truthful, and therefore it is authoritative for your life and for mine. But listen, the world system is going to do its very best to try and throw a wrench into that. It's going to try and throw a wrench into your confidence about this book. Uh, it might be some smart aleck professor like Dr. Israel Finkelstein or those two jokers standing on the sidewalk back when I was in seminary. Maybe somebody like that, or maybe it might be your friends are going to try and shake your confidence in this book. It may be the Discovery Channel. I don't know where it's going to come from, but people have been doing it for well before our generation. It's been going on for centuries, and uh, the Bible has always, friends, stood the test of time. I don't care what kind of high-sounding logic they may throw at you. I don't care what kind of human reasoning they may throw at you. Friends, you stick with the Bible as the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, reliable word of God. And listen, when the dust settles and we're all standing in eternity before the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be glad, I'll be glad, we stuck with Jesus' words. We'll be glad that we stuck with the truth of this book and with the promises that it made us. 
and we'll be glad for Jesus' words. Luke chapter 21, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can count on them. They are faithful. They are true. Let's pray. Lord, so much hangs on the truthfulness and the reliability of this text. Right down, Lord, to your own authenticity to be who you said you are. And God, we know that there are forces at work in our world that know that if they can, if they can cause the Bible to be untrue, at least in the minds of people, then they can do away with biblical morality. And God, if they can do away with biblical morality, then they can go live however they want to live. And Lord, they can undercut your authority and your authenticity. But Lord, what we find is that this book, which contains your promises and your truth, Lord, that it is something we can, it's a firm, solid rock, a firm foundation, your word. And we're thankful for that. Lord, as we turn our attention now toward this table, the emblems representing your shed blood and your broken body. We're thankful, Lord, for the work that you accomplished on the cross so that, God, we don't have to bring perfection to you. God, that we don't have to be a good person to be accepted by you. But that, Lord, we are accepted because of what you did for us, not what we can do for ourselves. In these quiet moments this morning, Lord, may we just reaffirm to you again our commitment to the biblical record. Our commitment, Lord, to the faithfulness and trustworthiness of your truth in written form. And may we affirm, Lord, our commitment to you, Lord Jesus. Speak to us, we pray, Holy Spirit, in these quiet moments. In Christ's name.